Good day and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And we're in the middle of season 14 where we're doing blockbusters that have been adapted. And for this episode, we will be observing the Joel Schumacher take on Bob Kane's Vigilante. That's right, we're going to be looking at the 1995 action-adventure Batman Forever, starring Val Kilmer as the Cape Crusade, and with him, we've got a star-studded cast, including Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones, Chris O'Donnell, and... Now, let's get a few things straightened out here. Yes, this is my first Batman film. I could have easily gone Tim Burton. I could have effortlessly gone to the Love Trilogy made by Christopher Nolan or even the recent Matt Reeves or Snyder's, let's say, imaginative take on The Dark Knight. But I've decided to select the Batman film A I grew up with, B first watched and C brace yourselves. The one I consider has the best collective cast in any Batman film made so far. And I don't think that is a discriminating observation. Maybe if I stretch that statement and said Val Kilmer is my favorite Batman, that could maybe cause some waves, but I've heard worse things said about films before. Val Kilmer might be my favorite, but that is only because this film was released at the right age for me to enjoy this with the presumed purpose and reason Schumacher intended this film to be experienced, which is a fun ride, a no-holds-bar, a slightly satirical but yet dark take on Batman. And the other thing, yes, this is season 14. I missed season 13 deliberately because, well, superstition and all that. A lot of hotels, they don't have floor 13s displayed on the lights. It goes straight from 12 to 14. I think I learned that from Stephen King's 1408, so I thought I should have a little homage to that little moment. But yeah, maybe I should look into that film. Anyway, yes, so admin closed. There is no season 13. And yes, after 150 episodes, this is my first one on a Batman movie. And I have chosen Batman Forever out of the 17 Batman movies that exist. Some could argue there are 66, but I'm saying 17 movies that primarily had Batman as a protagonist in a mainstream production. This episode follows suit with my themes of adaptations. Previous episodes have seen adaptations from cartoons, theme parks, so I think we've returned to the regularity and frequency of where adaptations usually come from, which are comic books, more specifically Bob Kane's comic books. So Marvel, take a time to just rest, take a back seat, because I'm going to have a little deep dive into DC. So when I was a kid, I was told virtually every time the same thing when it came down to comic books. And 20 years ago, it was the same story. Two competitors were leading the shelves just like they are now in terms of comics. And those are DC and Marvel. And the thing I was always told repeatedly is Marvel has the better heroes and DC has the better villains. And if you look closely, yeah, maybe it's subjective, but it's true. DC have the better villains and Marvel has the better heroes, and it's an easily agreeable statement. Batman has always been up there with the leading superheroes for DC, growing up in the 80s or 90s, and the only real competition, maybe Spider-Man was his only real competitor? Now, right now, it's all about Iron Man from Marvel, and well, maybe the Joker from DC, which has its own film and creates his immense buzz when someone is about to play the Joker, because someone wants to know who's going to play him, and that always creates a whole topic of its own. And now we've got solo original movies on Batman villains, made possible by Todd Phillips. So Bob Kane, the man who created Batman, or Bruce Wayne, and it's already a going against trend with what a superhero is meant to be, a superhero that has no powers, his name is not alliterative, and he's usually wanted by the law for helping him catch the bad guys. Something I never got. Just let him do his thing, man. I mean, Jim Gordon obviously understood that, but everyone else, Jesus, take a break, let him do the hard work, you know? So this was riding on the shoulders and success of Superman when DC released The Man of Steel back in the 1930s. That's almost... 
a hundred years ago, and they thought, let's capitalize on this momentum. And so Bob Kane, who, by the way, is known as the creator of Batman, decided to come up with another story. There is, however, another person I should mention called Bill Finger. His name forever lost in the archives, who is the guy who actually came up with the concept of this anti-hero being more bat-like. Anyway, the two made you know magic happen in 1939, the start of World War II. And Batman was first introduced in the 27th issue of the Detective Comics, which, by the way, is what DC stands for. Now, I could ramble on about the history of Batman, but long story short, the character was brought to life 20 years after the comic book debuted in 1960 with the television series, which gave it this camp aesthetic, which unfortunately continued to be associated with the character for years, even after the show ended and made Adam West relevant and speech bubbles fashionable. After some backroom arguments, a lot of people in Hollywood try to bring this character back with some dignity and integrity. That dramatically steered away from the 1960s slapstick tone and route to a more darker undertone. And Frank Miller tried with his 1980 miniseries, but it wasn't until the late 80s in 89 that Tim Burton decided to bring Batman to the big screen and cast Michael Keaton in the lead under much controversy. He directed two films, Batman in 89 and Batman Returns a couple of years later, and was on board in making in the third but dropped out along with the gothic tone the lead actor and the direction and this brings us nicely to batman forever a film that opens up like an advert for rubber attire but despite its laughable moments it remains bold and a pleasurable take on the cape crusader the mission was achieved with Tim Burton to revive Batman from its reputation of campness and associations with speech bubbles every time someone gets hit. Tim Burton swung hard and achieved this film noir approach to the comic books and in turn became almost too dark, too gloomy. So they had to bring some shades and vibrancy to it and boy did they with Joel Schumacher's version. Some call it a punk rock cosmic vibe to it. Val Kilmer steps up in the new role and down goes Keaton until his revival role in The Flash, which was actually quite a good film, if you ask me. He said that he turned down the role because, and I quote, to lighten up and brighten it up and be a cartoon was of no interest to me. But Val Kilmer was fine of it, third actor at the time to play Batman, who famously got the call from his agent while he was in a bat cave in Africa while researching his new movie, The Ghost in the Darkness. I mean, if that isn't a sign, what is? And Val Kilmer, I mean, as as great as an actor he was, he actually clashed with Joel Schumacher on several occasions during this movie. Apparently Val was quite childish and impossible, and Val didn't even talk to him for two weeks out of spite. I mean, this movie doesn't show the tension of what was really going on behind the scenes, which just show how good this movie was. Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones also had some clashes as well. He mentioned on an in- I think it was a podcast recently, Jim Carrey said that he went to a restaurant to see Tommy Lee Jones the first time, right before their big scene. And Tommy Lee Jones was sort of shaking and looked at him and he went all red. And Tommy Lee Jones just stood up, just hugged him and he whispered in his ears, I don't like you and I don't entertain your buffoonery, which is crazy. And Jim was like, Jesus. And Val and Jim became friends during this because I think their fathers died on set at the same time. So they sort of bonded over that. But yeah, that's something. Val is a very serious actor. Take nothing away. He's on par with the method acting of Robert De Niro, who had just worked with on Heat, which came out the same year. So he was quite hard to work with when all he was being told was just to stand there and look pretty and pout. So, And he looks really menacing as Batman, really good. But I mean, he really wanted to do some acting with Batman. And Batman is not the act, sort of role you do acting with. It's sort of the villains that sort of get to express and have fun with it, which is why uh, a lot of people say that the villains are the best part of DC. Rene Russo was originally casted as Dr. Chase Meridian, which Roger Ebert said sounded like a bank. So when Val Hilmer was casted, she had to drop out because she was deemed too old. 
And so they had to cast Nicole Kidman, who was seven years younger. And Rene Russo was only six years older than Val Kilmer, so it could have worked. And she was quite sexy in the mid-90s, so it definitely had that thing. But they thought Nicole Kidman and Val Kilmer had that chemistry. Tom Cruise must have been thrilled to see his wife at the time play the love interest alongside Iceman. Val is lost amongst noise and commercial success of the other Batmans, but Bob Kane officially said that Val was the one that gave the best interpretation amongst all the actors to play Batman at the time. I believe he only saw West, Keaton and Clooney before he died in 1998. Probably died watching Batman and Robin, to be honest. But what a cool thing for the creator to be alive during the making of this. Bob Kane would visit the set twice a week. And despite the criticism of this movie over time, it still performed well at the box office. It brought in over $58 million in its opening weekend, which broke the record, beating Jurassic Park. So there was massive hype when this film was first released. On a global scale, this movie was the fifth highest grosser movie of 1995. And that was a tough year to be even in the charts. And that's the year of Apollo 13, Pierce Brosnan's debut as Bond in Goldeneye, the third Die Hard, Toy Story, Babe, Braveheart, Seven. It was a jam-packed year. It was revamped once again from the film noir tropes Burton rightfully introduced in the last two Batman films. Schumacher, like Jackson Pollock, aggressively splashed some much-needed colour and cosmic energy into his version of a Batman production. Tim Burton knew what the studio wanted after the second movie, which underperformed for the studio and was very forthcoming about stepping down and letting the film you know, evolve with a new direction and letting Joel Schumacher take over. Schumacher is 80s royalty with the Lost Boys and Elmo's Fire Flatliners so had the integrity behind his name to take on a big movie. Very much like Burton did in 89 when he took a stab at Batman and had the credibility of doing dark films like Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. In fact, most of his films before Batman were movie shorts and that on its own were impressive. Batman was essentially the start of the run of his life that bled into the late 90s. So Burton steps down, stayed on as producer and had dinner with his possible predecessor Joel Schumacher who wanted to really do it being a big Batman fan and only agreed to do it if he had Burton's blessing. Very respectable and he did. At the time, which was 1993, Michael Keaton was still going to be Batman, Robin Williams was the front runner for the Riddler, Schumacher was in the middle of making the client which is how he managed to get Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, a big paycheck. In fact, besides Val Kilmer, all the main actors worked with Joel Schumacher at some point prior or after. So Jim Carrey worked with him. I think it was number 23. Val Kimmer didn't work. Tommy Lee Jones, of course, did decline with him. I think he might have done another film after it too. Nicole Kidman had done a film with him. Chris O'Donnell. So everyone had a good working relationship with Joel besides Val. And Tommy Lee Jones read the script and simply didn't get it. And the producer, Peter McGregor, was who was close friends with Tommy Lee Jones. They had done Under Siege together and The Fugitive, in which he won his Oscar. Basically said, why don't you read the fucking thing and remember that you are the Academy Award winning actor, Tommy Lee Jones, and you're playing this fucking role. And he hung up. And Tommy Lee Jones was like, all right, okay, I'll do it. Really casually, by the way. Surprisingly, the big chat in the pre-production was the Riddler and the execution of it. And naturally, who was going to play him? I mean, I guess it's not that shocking since the Joker was sort of the main event in Burton's 89 movie, and the actor who played him, Jack Nicholson, had the top billing and was the guy who primarily brought people to the screens with his name. So like the Joker, they basically wrote it knowing, you know, Nicholson was going to play the Joker. And with this, they knew that Robin Williams was going to play the Riddler, or they definitely assumed he was going to play it. And Robin Williams read the script. He loved it. They just didn't make the deal. 
And Schumacher was fine of Keaton being Batman, but like I said before, Keaton didn't like the direction. Kilmer's name only came up when Schumacher was chatting with his friends and Tombstone had just come out. And Val, who plays Doc Holliday, gave a scene-stealing performance. And he thought he would make a great Batman. And as luck would have it, the spot became available for him and Keaton turned it down and in comes Val Kilmer. So they had Batman. They had their two villains, which they always wanted because it worked well in Batman Returns. And Joel was like, yeah, that's fine, but I also want to introduce Robin in this movie. So... There was a lot to unpack in this movie. And the people who auditioned for Robin was the who's who's of A-listers in today's time. The irony in these auditions. I mean, Christian Bale auditioned for Robin. Ben Affleck auditioned for it. Leonardo DiCaprio heavily auditioned for the role of uh, Robin. It was like this mental audition process. But Chris O'Donnell bagged a role probably after his subtle role in Scent of a Woman. But Joel Schumacher said he wanted Robin because he wanted a demographic of younger girls to see this film. Because Batman was completely dominated by the attention of male audiences since males are usually the ones who read comic books so they wanted like a heartthrob for the ladies now they had to make chris o'donnell more confident in front of the camera they got his ears pierced to make him look badass had eye makeup on a bad boy haircut the leather jacket and everything else the film was on steroids i mean the thing they wanted to steer away from was its likability to superman in superman lois lane is lois lane lex luthor is just lex luthor but in the batman comics in gotham city everyone has a dual personality a struggle of identity and it's used heavily to provoke the plot of the movie every single character in this movie are essentially playing two characters in this film and also demonstrating that struggle on screen with themselves let alone the enemy at the time it's quite a visual metaphor in this movie but it is certainly done in a way that matches the chaotic cosmic tone of this movie. Now, Schumacher wanted to have this real comic book feel to it, diverting straight away from the goth image right in the punk image. He was happy with the bright colours and the homoerotic posing, all, all part of the image he was creating for the new Batman. Neon becomes a character of its own paying homage to the 20s and 30s, which has every chance to bring a personality to Gotham, considering this movie is mainly at nighttime. Joel had the clean slate he wanted, so this was really Joel Schumacher's Batman, and he created a visual set that is a character of its own. That's why you see Gotham with a load of faces and statues and anatomy, giving it life in this sort of Frankenstein way. The set design, as Joel puts it, was more important to him than the casting. It's a, it had to really feel like you're in Gotham, and you have to know what it's like during this movie. Gotham is a web of towering spires, bridges, and expressways planted in a swamp of despond, as Ebert puts it, it easily matches the Vertigo S feeling you're looking at with Fritz Lang's Metropolis. It was certainly there to attract a younger audience to watch this film, which it achieves by giving this sort of hip MTV vibe about it, which at the time was the trend in the early 90s. This movie is a dramatic and much needed change from Burton's gothic introduction of The Dark Knight. Schumacher achieves the straight the change straight from the title sequence. The, fa- the flashy colour of green and purple with the minor backdrop of Halloween drops this version into another world but with the same characters however like i said before the key difference between dc and marvel is that the villains are better in dc and with this movie and probably burton's one too batman remains shadowy and undefined it's very easy to accept that this movie simply exists for the villains hence the bigger names attached to the villains in dc and the bigger names attached to the heroes in marvel the movie is mid-90s so it doesn't concern itself with rhythm or plot even though you get where the story is going how it'll end from the opening 20 minutes but you are ready to experience the predictable ride because put it simply 
it is a flat out spectacle and it's an experience on its own to see both Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey give a no holds bar sociopathic performance that practically carries the attention of the film because of the capacity to not slow down on the energy of their characters. But anyway, that's all I have time for with Batman Forever. This is a complete eye candy and in the center of this Bob Kane world coming to life in the most commercial way it could be at the time it came out, a complete spectacle. It's interesting to see the progression in terms of tone. The 60s made Batman campy. Burton made it medievally dark. Schumacher basically made his two with the intention of selling toys with this cosmic MTV vibe he was given off. Then Christopher Nolan comes in and grounds the entire film in a trilogy, making it digestible and realistic. And because it was grounded, Snyder takes it up a notch and makes it a little more dark. Follow more Frank Miller's comic and the latest edition of Matt Reeves with Robert Patterson has gone maybe straight back to what Burton was doing, but more in a Scorsese vibe that best emulate 70s thrillers like Taxi Driver. Batman is a fascinating character that the world are invested into and always have an opinion on like James Bond. And when that transition happens in terms of tone, director or actor, we all haul our breaths and have an opinion about it because we are very invested in that character. It's a character that will live on past our lives and further and the film will always adapt and change. It just depends on what time slot do you first witness the Dark Knight in action. Mine was this one with Batman Forever in 1995. What was yours? Anyway, subscribe to my podcast. I'm on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Amazon, and I'm on the social media game. I'm on Instagram. Give me a like, give me a follow, give me a comment, and you can also find me co-hosting with Quantum Recast, a great theoretical podcast that will test your mind, your head, and even your brain. But for now, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. (laughs) 